about 40 years ago. I was a pastor in northern Minnesota, and I had to help with a funeral that was super sad. A man was from our community. He had no Christian testimony. He had no Christian walk. There was a grim funeral, and there was their little hope, little assurance. It was a sad deal. At the time, I was counseling with his son, and I remember standing with his son. It was a early spring, late winter day, and it was cloudy, and it was windy, and it was cold, and we're standing there on the edge of the grave, and it's a military funeral, you know, where they shoot the guns, and it scares you half to death, and so we're standing there, and all of a sudden the guns went off, and they started to play taps, and the sun just started to, to wail and sob, and it reminds me of the sadness of looking at a a loved one in this instance who had no hope or where the family had no hope. My message this evening is on assurance and perseverance and eternal security. The Bible teaches us that Christians are secure in God's hands. In fact, we find these wonderful expressions of our hope, not only in Scripture, but in the Westminster Confession, which describes the power of sovereign grace and says that the saved cannot totally or finally fall away. And our verse here, 1 John 5.13, is an outstanding assurance text. And so I look at this as being a a perfect example of the Bible's teaching on assurance. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now different versions will have a little different readings based on different manuscripts and so I'm using The New King James, or if you're looking at the King James, will be the same. Some of the newer ones will have a somewhat abbreviated verse. I'll say a little bit about that later. Don't worry about that for now. But look at this assurance text. Note the clarity of Scripture. Theologians talk about the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. The purpose statement here is crystal clear. John says, these things have I written to you for this purpose, that you might know that you have eternal life. There are plenty of difficult and challenging things in Scripture, but the fundamental things, the essential things are clear as they are here. This is the reason why I'm writing. Note as well the Christ-centered theme of Scripture. It is written to believers. John is writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. It is written to believers underscoring the centrality of faith in Jesus Christ. Even this language of believing in the name of the Son of God underscores the power of the name. 
as the apostle said in Acts 4, verse 10, there is salvation in none other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. Note the emphasis on eternal life. 1 John 5 verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So there's an emphasis upon the life to come, everlasting life, eternal life that is ours because of Jesus Christ our Savior. And note the emphasis on assurance that you may know that you have eternal life. Turn with me to John 20, because there we find a purpose statement for the Gospel of John. John 20, and this purpose statement is crystal clear. In John 20, verse 31, Jesus gives to us his reason for writing. Starting with verse 30, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Right. So here's the point. This is why John writes, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. Now compare that to 1 John 5.13. Again, a purpose statement. These things that I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In John 20, verse 31, John emphasizes the path to eternal life, believing on Jesus Christ, and here in John 5.13, he emphasizes the certainty of eternal life written to believers that they would have assurance and knowledge of their salvation. Note the assumptions regarding assurance in our verse, 1 John 5.13. These would be kind of the presuppositions of John or the things that the Lord wants him to communicate. Some Christians may lack assurance. They have doubts, they have fears, they have anxieties, and this is the reason why John wrote, some Christians may lack assurance. But true assurance is possible. John wants them, believers, to know that they have eternal life. This is his purpose, to encourage believers. And this true assurance is desirable. God wants us to have assurance, hence 1 John 5, hence 1 John 5.13. And true assurance only comes because of the perfect work of God. 
And over and over again, the scripture teaches us that our certainty, our assurance, our security does not rest on ourselves. It rests on what the Lord has accomplished. And so in 1 John 5.20, we see a reminder, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, This is the true God and eternal life. Now let me add that some Christian traditions do not stress the believer's security. Years and years ago, I was teaching a course at a different college in southwest Virginia, far southwest Virginia, and some of my students, they were in a little debate about Theology, And I remember one student saying to another, you Baptists believe in security, we don't. And I thought to myself, well, why would you want to be in that church? Why would you want to be someplace where they don't believe that your salvation is secure? Gregory I, who died in 604, a long time ago, was a famous Roman Catholic pope, and he's oftentimes remembered as Gregory the Great. This is what he said. The greater our sins, the more we must do to make up for them. Whether we have done enough to atone for them, we will not know until after death. We can never be sure of success. Assurance of salvation and the feeling of safety it engenders are dangerous for anybody and would not be desirable even if it were possible. And when I read that, I thought, I'm not going to call him Gregory the Great anymore. He's going to be Gregory not so great because he really missed it on a critical element of doctrine. We don't atone for our own sins. There's no way that we could ever pay the penalty for our sins. Rather, our sins are atoned for by the perfect work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on our behalf. I don't want to face God on Judgment Day trusting in my own merits. I want to appear before the throne of God pointing to the merits of Jesus Christ. Now compare what Gregory Not-So-Great says with John in 1 John 5.13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, listen to what Jesus says in John 10 and there is so much encouragement in John 10 from the perspective of a sovereign God who protects and watches over his sheep. John 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I give unto them eternal life. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And so you can draw a line between John 10, 27 and 28, and 1 John 5.13 about the assurance and 
a certainty of our salvation because of what the Lord has accomplished and how God protects us. And so first, I'm going to talk about this assurance text, 1 John 5.13. Second, I want to talk about assurance tests. Because in 1 John 5, we see ways of looking at ourselves to see how we're doing. We don't want a false security or a bogus assurance or carnal presumptions. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. And so in 1 John 3, we find a series of tests to see if we truly trust in Christ and follow him. 1 John 3.23 And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we've already seen that in 1 John 5.13. We already saw that in John 20, verse 31. But here's the question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ? All true Christians trust in Christ. And so Jesus said to his disciples, who had offered different opinions about who he was, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him and says, said that his father had revealed this truth to Peter. Or listen to what John says in John 2, verse 22 who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. 1 John 4, verse 15. 1 John 4, 15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. All true Christians need to believe in Christ and need to have a biblical Christology. We find verses about this throughout 1 John. 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3 by this you know the Spirit of God, whoever, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Over and over again, what do you make of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is the Christ? Do you believe that he is the Son of the living God? Do you believe that he has come in the flesh. Or in Romans 10, verse 9, we read, whoever confesses Jesus as Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, he shall be saved. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And that's the heart 
of John's teaching in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Second, do you love other Christians? 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave commandment. Do you love other Christians? Christ has commanded you to do this. In fact, John tells us that this command to love other Christians is an old commandment. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Don't be a Cain-like person. Rather, love your brother. Indeed, John tells us that God's love for us gives us an obligation to love one another. 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. He tells us furthermore that our love for others is a test of our love for God. 1 John 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And so do you love the brethren? Do you love the church of God? Do you love those for whom Christ died? Or as Jesus puts it in John 15, 12, my command is that you love one another as I have loved you. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you love other Christians? Third, do you keep his commandments? 1 John 3 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. John has a major concern with sin and lawlessness and righteousness and obedience. He comes back to this theme frequently. And so in 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4, we read, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Or you can look at 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Do you keep God's commandments? We live in an antinomian age where there's great hatred for God's standards. 
The Christian message has always been that we are saved by grace through faith because of Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so as faithful Christians, we should endeavor to be faithful and fruitful because the way in which we live before the Lord shows the condition of our heart and the condition of our faith. And if you wonder about that, you can look through a document like the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What a marvelous summary of Christian doctrine. And as you look through the Shorter Catechism, you'll see extensive coverage of the Ten Commandments, what it means, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Over and over again, there's basic instruction as to how we can live faithfully before our God, keeping his commandments, not that we do it perfectly, and we never do it on our own steam, but obeying the Lord as the Holy Spirit equips us and strengthens us. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you love other Christians? Do you keep his commandments? Do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit? 1 John 3, verse 24, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Or you can look ahead to 1 John 4.13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The Lord's spirit indwells us and encourages us and reassures us. In Romans 8.13 we read that the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In Ephesians 1.13, we read that believers are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, and so the Holy Spirit ministers to us, assuring us that we abide in Christ. And so four assurance tests from John, 1 John 3, verses 23 and 24. Now finally, let me talk about some assurance terms. There are four theological terms or ideas that are raised by our verses, and let me talk about them because these are things important to us all. First, the assurance of grace. There may be something that's personal and subjective here, but John says, he's writing this, that you may know that you have eternal life. There's a whole chapter on this theme in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, of the assurance of grace and salvation. We read that there is a possibility of assurance for the believers that though there are hypocrites and unregenerates with carnal presumptions, still true believers may have assurance that they are in a state of grace. There is an infallible nature of assurance. 
because it's founded on divine truth and God's promises and Christ's work and the Spirit's witness. There is a subjective assurance, I guess, but it's founded on something objective, Christ's perfect work. I heard a a fellow give his testimony a while back. He'd been raised in an Orthodox Presbyterian church. His father was an OPC elder. And uh, the young man had given himself to Christ, but sort of struggled because he said sometimes he didn't feel like he was saved. And his father said, and I thought it was a great response, his father said, we're not saved by our feelings, but we are saved by Christ. And so there may be days of darkness or days of discouragement where you just don't feel very righteous and don't feel very holy. Nonetheless, you're not saved by your feelings, but you are saved by the Good Shepherd who has laid down his life for you and who protects you and watches over you. Assurance can be cultivated. Believers may waver or be weak, but they should pursue every means of grace. As we read in 2 Peter 1.10, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. And our assurance can be renewed. Some may stumble and struggle, but God will always reclaim his children. And my favorite example of this is Peter. Now, if you want an example of someone who messes up big time, think about Peter as Jesus is going to the cross. And Jesus says to Peter, before all these events unfolded in Luke 2, 31 and 32, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. And then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. There's got to be something really frightening about those words. Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And sometimes we go through the struggles of life. I don't know if anybody had more personal struggles than Peter did in this instance. But our assurance can be renewed. And there's great confidence in knowing that our high priest, our mediator, prays for us and ministers to us and helps us. Assurance of grace, second perseverance of the saints. This is another term that we used in discussing security. Perseverance of the saints. True believers will persevere in the faith. They will not be lost. And you say, what about those who show no fruit? There's no perseverance. They make some Christian statement, but their life reveals nothing. Um, Years ago, I was witnessing to a a high school friend of mine named Carl, 
and really emphasizing the, the gospel message and the need to be committed to Christ. And Carl said, oh, I'm not worried about that. I've got that taken care of. He said, you know, uh, I was raised Roman Catholic, so I got baptized as a child. So if the Catholics are right, I'm covered. And then Kenny and I went down to a Billy Graham crusade in Minneapolis, and we went forward. So if the Protestants are right, I'm covered there as well. So I thought, oh, no, this is not the, the way of doing it. I, I just couldn't help him out seeing this. And his cousin, Kenny, was a notorious reprobate. And so the fact that he had linked himself with Kenny going almost as if you could fake the Lord out by sneaking forward at the Billy Graham crusade, and then what's the Lord going to do once you've accomplished that? What about someone who shows no fruit and no perseverance? There are examples in Scripture. In 1 John 5.13, we find this last clause, to continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I mentioned that some manuscripts have this and some don't, and don't worry about that. I'd be happy to talk with you about manuscripts at some other time. Certainly, the theme mentioned here about continuing to believe in the name of the Son of God is referenced elsewhere in Scripture. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. In other words, for the one who's dedicated to the Lord, their lives should be characterized by faith, a continuing faith in Jesus Christ, their Savior. Some of you may know the story in Matthew 7, 20-23, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus follows a section on fruit by giving this example. There's going to be some who will say, Lord, Lord. And that's an expression of great intimacy or presumed intimacy. Some are coming to God saying, Lord, Lord, we did great works in your name. Boy, we at home run after home run, we did a lot. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who commit iniquity. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, Jesus has been talking about, or Paul has been talking about those who've gone astray and renounced the faith and have gone off into different areas. And then almost anticipating that someone will say, well, what about eternal security? Right? These people, we knew them, and now they're gone. What about the believer's security? And Paul says, the foundation of God stands. And it has this seal, that the Lord knows his own. And then, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And so there is a call to the entire visible church, all of those who name the name of the Lord, to be faithful to the Lord and to depart from iniquity. A call to the visible church to persevere in the faith. A third term, and this one I really like, the preservation of the saints. 
So we talk about the perseverance of the saints. People continue on. The preservation of the saints is a reminder that the Lord is the one through his sovereign grace who preserves us and helps us. Uh, I mentioned to Reverend Bucktail that I was going to tell a Dr. Gerstner story today. Uh, 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 I had Gerstner for one class. Reverend Bucktail had him for many, many classes, but we like to share some of these stories because he was an incomparable teacher of the Word of God and theology and church history. And he always emphasized the sovereign power of God in salvation and the power of God to protect us. And I still remember how he said that our view of the perseverance of the saints is connected to our view of the preservation of the saints. You see, if my perseverance is up to me, (laughs) I'm in trouble. But if my perseverance is connected to the preserving work of a sovereign God who had his son go to the cross to redeem me, then there's hope. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, we read, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, to will and to do his good pleasure. And so we're doing the Lord's work. We strive to be faithful, but it's the Lord through his spirit that's at work within us. Or if you want a really good example of God's preserving grace, the preservation of the saints, look at John 10. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one plucks them from my hand. John 10, 29, my father is greater than all. No one is able to pluck them from my Father's hand. One final term, and this is one maybe we're more familiar with than the others, eternal security. Our eternal security is anchored in God's promises, Christ's work, and the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not based on our feelings, but based upon the perfect work of the triune God. We read this in 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Scripture tells us in Titus 1, verse 2, that God promised our salvation before the world began. And so from the beginning of time, the Father gave to his Son a people to be redeemed in due time. 
And so from God's eternal plan, we have great confidence and assurance. Listen to these words from Hebrews 6. The author of Hebrews here wants us to take confidence and be assured. Hebrews 6, verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. It wasn't enough that God would make a promise that's not, never going to change, but they even confirmed it with an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The London Baptist Confession puts it this way, 1689, very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith, but the London Baptist Confession of Faith adds this, that assurance is an infallible promise based on the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ revealed in the gospel. Your eternal security is anchored in what God purposed to do from all time and what Christ accomplished at the cross and what the Holy Spirit does in ministering to you and aiding you and providing a witness to you. Let me read one final verse. This is from John 6. John 6, verses 39 and 40. John 6, verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. In the counsel of eternity, the Father gave to the Son a people, and the Son would lose none of them. I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. And you may hear that and say, yeah, you know, but there's a lot of election stuff in there. And I don't know if I'm okay with the election stuff. And so if I'm a little nervous about that and insecure about that, what do I do? Verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the promise of the Lord. That's the promise of the Savior. That if you look to the Son and believe in him, you will have everlasting life and you will be raised up on the last day. I had a friend years and years ago who went to his funeral service in East Tennessee. There's some old guy who had died and he went to pay his respect, and the person was in the coffin. But what was unusual about it is that his Bible was opened on his chest, and the mortician had positioned the finger to point to John 6, verse 40. I thought that was such a good idea. And let's do that. Let's do that. John 6, 40. 
it's almost like when the Lord comes back, don't forget me, Lord, you, you promised. But we have that promise in Scripture. Jesus says he will not lose any that the Father has given to him. And everyone who comes and sees the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life. And it's almost as if to anchor this truth that John in 1 John says, I'm writing this to those of you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. God, our Father, we're thankful for the promises of Scripture. We're thankful for your purpose from all eternity to save a people. We're thankful for the coming of Jesus Christ in his perfect and complete work at Calvary. We're thankful for his resurrection, for his ascension, for his being seated at your right hand, for his coming again in power and glory. We are especially thankful for the promise that you've given to your people, that you love us, that you have sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins, that you have saved us, that you have made us secure in your hands, and that you desire us to have assurance, knowing that we have life everlasting through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We give thanks for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in closing to Psalter Selection 139 that Sanders sang the Maroon Psalm Book. Psalm 139a.